Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Hey everybody, I want to say a little more about the cross and the crucifixion, possibly through an unfamiliar lens for some of you. Uh, I promised to do this on Sunday and so uh, I wanted to make sure this week that I fulfil that promise. I've titled my talk today at Cross Purposes for reasons that I think will become evident as we <clears throat> go along. Uh, it is not my intention to pull any punches on your behalf, but to say how I see it. Um, I believe in the importance of the cross in Jesus' story. Uh, that is not in question in, in my own mind and heart. It's just how we interpret it may have some different nuances that you should be aware of, and I hope will be aware of after this talk today. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I... I'm not planning to use scripture grenades, uh, which I could do. Uh, throw in verses here and there, well, this is that. That is not the basis of my conversation today, although I will bring some Bible verses into it. But I, I, want, to, I want to appeal to your sense of reason to think through some principles that hopefully then as we feed them through uh, a lens which involves scripture and Bible and sacred text, uh, and all that we know will bring you to a, a new understanding and a new revelation of <clears throat> what I think has become in some ways uh, distorted <clears throat> in its expression of who the divine, who God, who the creator, who the source really is. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I also want to say that uh, in my upbringing in uh, evangelical Pentecostalism, I was... Um, overtly and covertly taught to defend a dogma, not to engage a conversation. So I'm asking you today, don't, don't um, take the position where you are so upset or challenged or whatever, because some of the things I say will be controversial to you, but, but, but the, you won't allow that to just cause you to want to defend a dogma, but rather you'll be willing to engage a conversation. <clears throat> I apologise that some of this I will evidently be reading because you'll see my eyes look down. I didn't want to put it <clears throat> on uh, auto cue on the camera because uh, I will want to interject at different little points and I'm not bright enough or clever enough to do all the clicky things to do that within. And I don't want my uh, dear friend Danny to uh, have to spend pointless hours editing <clears throat> all the little bits and bobs um, that uh, that would create. He's got enough on his plate and we've got enough on our plate now that we're back to meeting again on Sundays. Don't forget we'll be back in again this Sunday at 10. <clears throat> Okay, so let's get to it. I could justify and argue the case for each and every atonement theory ever proposed. Regardless of my agreeing or not, I can simply understand why those theories emerged. I believe that romanticism infects the interpretation in some. 
In all of them, the cultural influence prevalent at the time of their development shines through. I would argue that their concluded theories are more to do with those factors providing the lens of interpretation than any other. From the belief in powerful demonic forces, to the honour of knights and kings, to the spectre of legal accountability and justice, to the escape from inevitable wrath, all can be proven to have been dominant cultural realities at the time the particular theory was devised. So I understand it when an atheist or a sceptic puts forward the argument from considering those factors of a God whose idea is, I'm going to create humanity with original sin, then I'm going to impregnate a woman with myself as her child, so I can be born, and once alive, I will kill myself as a sacrifice to myself to save you from the sin I originally condemned you to. It raises the question that's obviously proposed, uh, particularly from the atheistic viewpoint, which I have to say is a very good way of, of questioning um, what we mean uh, by our understanding of the cross and the, the sacrifice of Jesus, because they would say this, did God sacrifice himself to himself to save us from himself because of a rule he made himself? There are many things which, while accepting the reality of the cross, lead my thinking in a direction other than the one proposed to me for much of my life. This is how it went. <clears throat> you were born sinful. You are separated from God because of one act of disobedience committed by someone else you don't even know in which you have now become a named participant. God cannot now look upon you because of your sin. You stand condemned and at risk of spending eternity in hell. But God impregnated a young Jewish girl 2,000 years ago so he could take on the form of human flesh, which incidentally would be more than 4,000 years after the original problem uh, by literal Bible reckoning. All that time. Why not before? Why wait over 4,000 years? He then sacrificed himself to himself to appease the anger within himself so he could save you from himself and unite you with himself. However, that only applies to those who themselves accept that he has made a way for them to save themselves from himself and so separate themselves from those selves who will still receive the results of his judgment by being banished and punished with eternal conscious torment or annihilation. They will be punished infinitely for finite crimes with no right of appeal or possibility of forgiveness. Does that sound okay to you? Does that sound the obvious actions of a loving father? In Western Christianity in particular, the whole plotline of the story of humanity has been made to revolve around that single sin committed between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in a place referred to as the Garden of Eden at the beginning of recorded history. This has served to create less a Christ-centred understanding and more a Jesus cult which sees him solely as the fix for the fallout of that one event and the means to make it out of here to heaven. I am chronically aware of and can probably quote all the scriptures that are pushed to supposedly make sense of this dilemma and make it sound obvious. 
but I am no longer convinced that the most common currently accepted theories drawn around these scriptures provide the best or the most accurate interpretations for the subject in question. For me, it all depends, not just on the lens through which these are viewed, but also the direction from which they are viewed. Looking forward to and through, not back at. What I mean by that is this, that so often what I was taught came from taking New Testament scriptures or our interpretation of New Testament scriptures and then superimposing them back historically onto the story, which meant that we could then make a, a conclusion to the story that was influenced by us imposing on the history through looking back the solution that we believed, rather than beginning at the beginning and then looking forward through history, through culture, through scripture, to then build up the picture that might help us then to interpret what we read at the end in the Gospels rather than the other way around. See, if you do that, you begin in Genesis chapter 1, which begins with original blessing, rather than the root of so much of these things, which begins in Genesis chapter 3 with what they call original sin. So even the starting point, when you look forward to and through rather than back at, becomes very different and so I believe the conclusions do also. And in the view of all this, I, I want to ask the question, why does it seem that the unconditional love purported in most atonement theories is so conditional? It's like unconditional love is proposed as a thing. God does this because of his unconditional love and then everything that I'm asked to do to become a participant of that unconditional love is conditional and it makes no sense to me. See, we are predominantly transactional in our thinking and culture. It's not therefore surprising that we would see the world through that lens and interpret experience accordingly. This is unfortunately fed and compounded by the Jewish experience recorded in the Bible and the elements of Jewish culture through which we pass them, like the post-law attributes of temple life and sacrifice. And that leaves us with the idea that there's only one way to view and interpret them. The problem is that this can suppress our full exploration of the meaning of anything by limiting the scope of the word why? See, and this is one of the big keys. Why? Of the things I mentioned to you before about trying to make sense of what God has attempted to do. And I know all the explanations about, oh, well, you don't understand. God is Trinity and God, Father, Son and Spirit, X, Y, Z, whatever. I said, I'm not going to throw uh, scripture bombs, scripture grenades into this. I'm just wanting you to think that actually there is a sensible reasonable question put over some of our conclusions and most of our theories on this matter that need to be addressed with a much bigger why. Don't limit the scope of the word why. Set yourself free to ask these questions that I assure you will bring you to a good place. See, an unlimited non-predetermined why of these things can produce a very different conclusion to the ones given. If we hold to that that we've just said about all this stuff, 
then it would make me think that grace can never find its full expression in our doctrine and teaching because it is by its very nature non-transactional and purely transformational. So we can't preach amazing grace and then on the other hand propose a transactional understanding of the cross, the crucifixion, God, our relationship with him, our spirituality. The two just do not go together because grace is by its very nature non-transactional and it is purely transformation. It is something received, not something done throwing into that debate I think worship and prayer and this is why I struggle sometimes with worship and prayer worship and prayer most often become simply another layer in the transactional understanding of the gospel we will do this so that the presence of God will come we will do this so that God will respond can you see that's transactional thinking not transformational and all of that then bolsters ideas about God and the cross and us that in my view now are, are um, not correct. See, the truth is Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. He came to change the mind of humanity about God. But the models we have been given are all the time appealing to our inner understanding that it is the mind of God that needs to be changed about our state and condition. Not our state and condition or our mind that needs to be changed about who God really is and what he's really about and what he's really done and what he does and how he exists and what occurs and what happens and what is there for us. And that's what we're looking to correct in what we're saying today. See, there's a word used, atonement. Those of you who've been in church will be familiar with this. But whatever atonement may or may not mean, it is not about changing how God sees us, but how we see God. And that correction needs to come. In all honesty, common atonement theories, of which there are many, and an atonement theory is a theory about what happened at the cross. What does the cross mean? What happened at the cross? What happens with the blood of Jesus? Well, in all honesty, these common atonement theories, if, 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 if we're going to be really truthful, don't say much good about God because they're this transactional thing. See, they reveal a God pissed off at creation. Now, come on, get on this with me. We, all, all the stuff that's thrown out about grace and, 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 and love and unconditional love is, is still supported and backed up by this underlying or, or, or overarching message that God is pissed off with us. And if you don't like the language, I apologise. I don't mean to be offensive, but it just seems to be the best way to describe it. A God who is pissed off at humanity and that's got to be fixed. See, and, 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 and that's not good. That doesn't say anything good about God. In fact, these theories compound the distortion of, of what is known uh, in psychology as, as father wounds. The wounds that we have because of dysfunctional relationships with earthly, our earthly father. See, the very vocabulary of, of all of this stuff that, you know, again, in spite of the, oh, it's unconditional love and God loves us and, and, and he gave his life for us. And, uh, and grace flows like a river. Just think of the language, wrath of God. Justice must be served and satisfied. Law must be upheld. Now the truth is, 
if, if those things are true, if justice must be satisfied and law must be upheld, can't you see that that would make God subservient to a higher power? Well, God can't break his own law. Well, in that case, then, God is dominated by something more powerful than himself, which is, is the law and the need for justice. And, and that makes him the servant of, not the master over. Do you see what I'm saying? See, these things, you've got to think them through. And it's the language of obey or be punished. And I believe they distort the image of God. In uh, 1094 through 1098, four years, um, Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury wrote a paper titled Cur Dios Homo. Cur Dios Homo. And that being translated from the Latin is Why God Became a Man. Uh, and it's been described by some as the most unfortunately successful piece of theology ever written. And I would agree because out of that theory, again, culturally influenced by the time in which Anselm lived, came a theory of, of, of what the atonement was about, what the cross meant, what Jesus was doing at the cross that became then a little later through the hands of John Calvin um, in the 1500s, it became what, what is known in church circles as, as PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Now, for some people, that sounds like something from a porno movie. I don't know. Uh, for other people, uh, I would say certainly that 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 this whole thing, even the title is frightening, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Even the title is threatening and intimidating. And it basically comes from the development of, of going through uh, from the need of, of knights to have their honour restored so they they must restore their honor when they have been dishonored and it comes from the the whole thing of the legal system of uh, of um repaying of 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 um what's the word i'm looking for of retributive justice rather than restorative justice and uh, it's basically builds on the premise that god is owed a debt which must be paid and uh, the problem is once you get into that, everything becomes driven by a transactional model. Can you see we're back to that again? God is owed a debt which must be paid. The debt of sin must be paid. Before that, we had the whole thing of, well, there is a debt that must be paid, but it must be paid to the devil in order to free people because the devil now has them under control. And this was a shift from that mentality, which I don't agree with that one either. We're shifting that mentality to say, no, the, the, the debt is owed to God because of what we have done and it must be paid. But like I said, once you get into that, everything becomes driven by a transactional model in which grace becomes a mere supporting actor rather than the main character. I believe grace is the main character in the epic of the story of Jesus and the cross and God and the world. See... Atonement has become, in, in the minds of most people in church, uh, appeasing or satisfying the anger of the gods to create a shield against their wrath. Now, that's not true relationship. Now, I like the Franciscan version of, um, of uh, 
understanding atonement and it's something some of you will be familiar with but need to take much more seriously um, it was pushed by by um, a guy called John Dunn Scotus um, and um, it takes the word atonement, which, which that appeasing or satisfying the anger of the gods to create a shield against their wrath, is a very, it's, it's not a good, we, we don't really have a good English, Greek understanding of what is really conveyed by what atonement means. But they, they described it as this. It seems a bit simple and twee, but it's very good. At one meant atonement at one it's even spelt that way in English, at one month, which means no debt to be paid, simply a union to be made. So we have to start coming from the perspective, if we're going to get rid of a transactional model, to say this all has to be rooted on the idea, no debt to be paid, simply a union to be made. So everything that is done is about the making of that union, because no debt is demanded and that therefore changes what we think was happening in the death of Jesus on the cross. See, we cannot have Jesus simply being a problem solver, which most of those theories leave him. He solves the sin problem. We, we can't have the Christ as a plan B. That sort of, well, it shouldn't have gone this way, but it did. But our backup plan is X. No, there has to be something transcendentally larger than that, which I believe is contained in immersing oneself in the all-understanding of the Christ, which is another message altogether. The cross is not a mop-up exercise in a failed experiment. So let me just give you two things that might help you get started in a different way of looking at these things. Now I am aware there's so much more that can be said. There's all these scriptures that pop up in one's mind. There's all these statements. I'm trying to give you a way today to approach that conversation that might lead you to a, a different and better and greater conclusion that truly is rooted in unconditional love and, uh, and where grace is the central character. So, so let me just look at two things that might help you get started in a different way of looking at these things. Here's where I've just got a few verses. In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, here's what Paul writes. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. Now speaking very Jewish language to Jewish people who understand this. Um, as you really are. But this, this is what I want you to grab, okay? Just as a little indicator for Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now he's drawing the attention of these uh, Jewish believers to this story of Passover, which is when the children of Israel, who had been long-term captives in bondage, no freedom in the land of Egypt, actually found their freedom, were set free from their bondage, and, uh, and walked out of their free people to pursue the promise that hung over their lives. Um, so I would say just, first of all, one simple little point. At the centre of Christian doctrine, this is at the centre of Christian doctrine, and it's supported by the day Jesus died, okay? So Paul refers to him Christ, which again has so many connotations I'd love to talk about. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Passover lamb. So in the context of the calendar, what day do we see that Jesus actually died, even from scriptural record and historical reality? 
he died on the day of Passover. Passover was when he died. Uh, supporting this idea that he is our Passover lamb. Now, for those of you who, who might get this, uh, I will say it. He did not die on the Day of Atonement. Therefore, if you understand the whole issue of Jewish Day of Atonement and all that, Jesus could have died on that day, but he didn't die on that day because that's not what he was dying for. He died on Passover day because that was the message, that was the truth that was being put forward through his death and sacrifice on the cross. Now I want you to note a couple of things without getting deeply into this story. Passover was not, and those of you who are church people are probably the ones who are listening to this today, who've got some background in this, who may now be seething with smoke coming out of your ears, or maybe drooling at your mouth thinking, tell me more, you'll be one or the other. No, Passover was not, nor did it ever allude to be a sacrifice for sin. Now you know if you look at it, that is true. Passover had nothing whatsoever to do with anything or anybody dying to pay the price of sin. I could end my case there and say, okay, I hand over to the, to the defense on this matter. Passover was not, nor did it ever allude to be a sacrifice for sin. It's fascinating then that the crucifixion took place at Passover and not the Feast of Atonement. Then the truth of Passover is the dominant model for understanding the sacrifice of Jesus, which would mean its primary purpose is not sin as we define it. The Passover sacrifice was not for sin. It was the catalyst to deliver from the power of death and the model of slavery and subjugation, the breaking of the power of empire, the new legacy of the least. It had at its core the power of resurrection, of the word made flesh, of creation and the finished work. Sin is never mentioned as having anything to do with it other than one could imply something got us into this mess. You could imply that and therefore that was getting dealt with but that was not the primary focus. It was something much bigger. It was not transactional in that respect but it was transformational. Now we could talk about the detail and the whys and wherefores of it but I wanted to take the general point without spending an hour breaking that down too far. I want you to think about that central point. And then the second one that I wanted to bring to you to me is the most significant um, story, expression, um, record that has had such an impact on my life. Genesis 22 we have Abraham the father of promise who's already uh, led us to understand principles about what it means to, to, to follow the purpose to which we were called by leave your country people, father's house, leave the three levels of influence uh, in order that you can go to the to the the place of promise, um, we've already know that from Abraham's life. But in Genesis 22, we have the story of Abraham and the whole story of uh, what is written as a request for him to sacrifice his son Isaac, and uh, the interpretations of that, which if put through the wrong lens, give us the wrong story. Let me just explain very briefly. Um, that this experience that Abraham had in the, the, the request to sacrifice Isaac as we read it was not about dealing with some worldly culture but Abraham's very understanding of the gods. 
You see, when you read that story, we don't see Abraham arguing with the request of take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him in the place that I will show you. Why doesn't Abraham argue? Because sacrifice and human sacrifice was something with which Abraham was familiar because basically he was raised with the understanding from a pagan perceptive that the gods are angry and the gods must be appeased. And how you appease the gods is by sacrificing something precious to you. So if the gods were asking him to sacrifice his only son, then there are two things. Number one, he must pissed off the gods very badly. Uh, and secondly, that the, the requirement of his son was the highest form of sacrifice he could make to appease the anger of the gods. So there was much anger, but opportunity for appeasement, that, but that would mean him sacrificing his son to the gods so that the gods would be appeased. Now I'm using the term gods because I want you to see that this is translocational uh, and transcultural in, in its thing. You know, in other ways it would be throwing the virgins into the into the fire by the Mayans to to satisfy the wrath of the uh, of the volcano gods. So so this this is the background uh, in which we see this, and it's it's something. And even the ram caught by its horns in the thicket. I could go into more detail about this. Uh, was a cultural message to Abraham because because um, you know a ram caught by its horns in the thickets was a common concept. If you go to the British Museum, and I think the other one is in the Smithsonian Museum, you will see a model that predates Abraham from the culture Abraham belonged to, which is a golden ram with its horns caught in the thicket. Why was that? That was an image that Abraham would have been, um, would have been familiar with. And you would have to ask, well, what did it mean to Abraham? Well, the ram in those cultures was representative uh, and was the way that many pagan gods were portrayed with the head of a ram, with the look of the ram. And so when Abraham saw the ram caught by its horns in the thicket, and God now saying to him, look, don't kill Isaac, kill the ram. What Abraham was hearing, not here's Jesus coming in a few thousand years time to give his life for the sins of the world. What Abraham was hearing is, take, why do you think I would want your son? Is your understanding of me so distorted that you think I get so angry that I would require as payment for that anger that you sacrifice your own son? He says, here, take your son off the altar take him. I know you would do that because you think I'm that kind of God, but I'm going to show you I'm not that kind of God, and I'm going to show you what kind of God I am now. So a ram gets its horns caught in a thicket. Abraham in the story takes the ram and he sacrifices the ram, which was really a, a declaration in the language of the culture of the time to say that at that point Abraham was willing to sacrifice all his false concepts of God that had been driven by his pagan understanding in order to embrace the truth about God which that God is not angry with you and he does not require that you kill your son in order to appease that anger but he wants to give you your son whose name was laughter back. He doesn't want to take laughter from you, he wants to give laughter to you. Now that's a brief summary of this story but it's about dealing with Abraham's misunderstanding 
of the gods and therefore we should not take that and superimpose it to mean something that it would have never meant to Abraham but now we've made it the centre of our supposed belief about atonement doctrine and blood and sacrifice. Now if what happens then after that is that um, sorry yeah what happens is that Abraham is called before that to make covenant okay so so this this other part of that story and I never meant to tell you that bit about the ram and the sacrifice but I guess that's the way I've been drawn so I've told you that the bit I wanted to talk about was where in Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham hears God and remember this is these are stories to try and draw us in to learn something um, calls him to a place where he has to take some animals, okay, and some birds. And um, Abraham understands exactly what is being required of him because he takes the animals and he, he kills the animals and he divides the animals in two, long ways, so the carcasses are split in two. And then he arranges the animals, half a carcass uh, on one side and half a carcass on the other side to make a, a, a passageway. Um, which would be stained by the blood of those animals. And I know it's gruesome and horrible, and I apologise, and if, if you're sensitive to that stuff, uh, please understand we're talking culturally here that, that means something to the people who were having this message conveyed to them, and that's why I'm explaining it to you this way today. So, so you would have the divided carcasses and all blood in the middle, and the idea was that you would walk with someone between those divided carcasses and you would make a covenant. You know what a covenant is? It's a, a binding promise, a binding promise that you are declaring you will never break uh, because what you're really saying is let it happen to me as happened to these animals if I ever break uh, the, 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 the elements of this covenant that I'm making with you today. So the story is Abraham laid it all out and he understands what's required and he thinks he's going to make a covenant with God. But it never happens because when the time comes to walk through the carcasses to do this ancient act, uh, it says Abraham was put to sleep. And, and when he woke up, God himself, by himself, on his own, has already walked through the middle of the carcasses, passed through symbolically in a flame, um, and, and now the covenant has been uh, assured, fixed, and it can never be broken. But Abraham never got involved with it. Abraham was asleep. So we have this amazing uh, picture that, that, that within that, that, that because only God himself goes through the, 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 the alleyway of confession that through that blood, God is promising himself that he himself takes full responsibility for the fulfilling of his promise and makes it unbreakable by omitting the one who could break it from the process of making it. So he excludes the only one who could break it from the process of making it and he goes through the blood as an act of himself, for himself, from himself that demands nothing other than himself of which everybody becomes the beneficiary uh, who was included in that confession and declaration. Nothing is now demanded of us, but all fullness is offered to us, is the essence of that. But if that is true, it would make it would make covenant and not cleansing the primary purpose of the cross. This is where I was driving. 
it would make covenant and not cleansing the primary purpose of the cross. And again, there is no mention of sin. In the one I told you about Abraham and Isaac, there is no mention of sin. There's nothing about sin, even though blood is involved. There's no mention of sin whatsoever. Now, I must admit, cleansing may be a byproduct of covenant in that if someone is promised and committed themselves to us, then inevitably cleansing flows to us about those things that we might engage in that would not be uh, to the best liking of the one who has made covenant with us. So to that degree, cleansing becomes involved here, but it's not the primary driving motive. Therefore, I have to propose to you that the great currency of covenant to the ancients was blood. That's what blood spoke about. It spoke about covenant and that within this model that comes from a Jewish root, we have to understand that the blood being involved in the sacrifice of Jesus was more likely more to do with, with the re-expression or the re-emphasis of this process of covenant and the fulfillment of all that that meant rather than this idea of it, us needing it to somehow put us right with God because God has made a covenant with us and that's the difference here in what happened at the cross. I hope that's clear. I hope I haven't confused you or muddled you but just try to push your thinking down the line to see that in all these expressions when Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he wasn't talking about New Testament scriptures or the gospels because they did not exist. He was referring us back to these models and these ideas pre-law uh, in the purity of God coming to enter into relationship with humanity not transactionally uh, but transformationally. And to me, the cross was the re-emphasis of all this process and the fulfilment of all that that meant. And this is what I believe Paul meant when he wrote that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, I don't know whether you'll agree with me or not, uh, but I wanted to speak honestly to you today because I do believe that when you grasp this and understand this, it will bring you to a new level of freedom, a new level of understanding about the unconditional love of God and about the central role of grace in, 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 the, in the whole um, aspect of what we would call the good news and the gospel. So I bless you. I love you. I hope this has helped. I hope it poses more questions than it gives answers. And I hope you'll be willing to pursue those questions, not driven by dogma, but because you're engaging in a conversation. I believe in the cross, but I believe the cross is more about covenant than cleansing. And that that covenant that we have been invited into is one that, 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 that we are, that nothing is demanded of us, but all fullness is offered to us. Accept that, understand it, live in that fullness, and we'll catch you again at the weekend. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.